Did you know this chapel is one of the oldest structures in King's Landing? I think I may have heard at one point. Baylor built his sept around it. But men worshipped here long before him. Who carved this altar? Do you know? I'm afraid I don't. No one does. There's no name on it, nor anywhere else in the chapel. Now, the people who built this place didn't inflict their vanity on those who came after them, the way Baylor did with that great gilded monstrosity up there. <laughs> their faith was clean. Strip away the gold and the ornaments, knock down the statues and the pillars, and this is what remains. Something simple. Solid and true. The Tyrell's finery will be stripped away. Their lies knocked down, their true hearts laid bare for all to see. And so it will be for all of us, high and low alike. What will we find? when we strip away your finery. A young man came to us not long ago, broken in body and spirit. He had so much to strip away, so much weighing him down. But piece by piece, he unburdened himself, let go of vanity, pride, Sin. Now his soul is so light, he will float through the seven heavens like a bird. Hmm. And he has much to say about you. Immediately. You will order her to let me go. I am the queen. I am the queen. Have you lost your mind? Let me go. This week on the Sound Unsight Game of Thrones podcast, we're talking about season five, episode seven, The Gift, written by David Benioff and D.B. Weiss and directed by Miguel Sapachnik. We'll be right back after this. Back to the Sound On Site Game of Thrones podcast. This is Kate Kolzik, TV editor of SoundOnSite.org, and I'm joined as ever by my wonderful co-host, our editor in chief, Mr. Ricky D. Ricky, how's it going? 
I am a queen, not a butcher, Kate. <laughs> yeah, I the the I tweeted out this week uh, on Sunday that it was time to dread watch Game of Thrones, which was after last week. And anybody who's not sure what we're talking about, I don't know how you could possibly be listening to a Game of Thrones podcast if you did know what we were talking about. Uh, but they can go back and listen to last week's episode. Uh, I was not looking forward to talking uh, to doing the podcast last week. This week, I actually am. So. You know, that's a, I'm really excited that I wasn't dreading recording today. How about you, Ricky? Yeah, you know, I lit up my candle <laughs> every single night since last week's controversial rape scene. And I prayed to the gods and I was hoping for the best. And I think we got one of the best episodes. Actually, no, the best episode of the season yet. Okay, well, we will dive in more with this particular episode. But first, we're excited to welcome to the podcast uh, Justine Smith, our film editor over at Sundance State. Justine, welcome welcome to the podcast. How have we not had you on before? Well, because I'm not the biggest Game of Thrones fan. Um, I just, I'm just not. Uh, I was on your Hannibal podcast, which I think is a way better show. We, we talk, we've talked plenty of TV uh, on the Televerse, uh, myself and my Televerse co-host, Simon Howell, with, with you, Justine. And uh, of course, over uh, with Sean on This Is Our Design, but, but never Game of Thrones. So this will be fun. Uh, and we'll get your thoughts on last week as well, because of course, I think that very much influences how we read or how most people will read this particular episode of Game of Thrones. But to to get out of the way at the top here, um, there will be no spoilers for future episodes of Game of Thrones in this episode of the podcast. Uh, I have read the books, uh, most of the books. Ricky has not. Justine, what is your relationship with uh, Song of Ice and Fire? I have not read the books. I own them, though. Does that count for points? Are they like staring at you saying, read me, but they're huge, so you haven't started? I actually have no idea where they are right now. Ah, that will do it. That will certainly yeah, do it. Yeah, they're buried in a pile of other books. <laughs> well, um, the reason I mention at the top, uh, we always like to say, say at the top, because, of course, there are going to be no spoilers for future things that have happened in the books but not happened in the series yet. We may do some compare and contrast between what it has happened in the books, uh, how they've changed the show, basically, from the books, the ways that they've deviated and the ways that they haven't. Um, but really, we view this mostly as the text as the show, and uh, that's that's where our conversation is centered. So people don't need to worry about spoilers for, for the book or for future episodes in the show. That's all out of the way. So, Justine, to kick things off uh, quickly... Right here, what was your th- like? What was your take on last week's episode? The contra- all the controversies surrounding last week's episode, and did it affect how you viewed the gift? I think it definitely affected how I saw this week's episode, um, especially a couple moments in particular. I think last week really ended on a like sour note, and I'm sure that there are about like 150 different think pieces you can read debating whether or not. It's a good thing or not. I, I didn't particularly like it, partially because it's not unprecedented in the show. And the fact is, Game of Thrones doesn't really have the greatest track record in their use of sexual assault and sexual abuse. And I don't think that that episode really changed that. Um, and honestly, looking back to last week, it's the only thing I actually remember happening right now. Like, I'm trying to think of anything else happening, and that's really all that I can recollect, which is not a good sign either. So then how did this episode work for you? This episode worked and it didn't work. I think that I've been kind of soured on the show. I think this season a lot of unhappenings were going on. It's it's kind of par for course with Game of Thrones, where it's really a slow build. Um, I did not enjoy the fact that they kind of, like, 
glossed over that element. I mean, there's they kind of hinted at it with um, Sansa with the with the knife in her hand, and but on the other hand, you have the other near sexual assault that happens, and it just just does not really work for me anymore. It feels too much like they're using it as a shortcut for the character development of the male characters. Um, I'm just like, I'm just kind of tired of it. On the other hand, I mean, it's an episode that a lot of really cool shit happened. Uh, um, just the fact, like, seeing um, the Mother of Dragons meet Peter Dinklage for the first time. Like, it's cool. And, like, I'm not going to say it's not. Like, they're probably my favorite characters, so that's awesome. But overall, I think I'm still kind of recovering from my annoyance over last week because I don't think I left this episode with a particularly glowing perception and I'm not necessarily looking forward to next week. Yeah. Well, it's interesting for me looking at this episode because once again, we have uh, sexual assault used in this episode, attempted sexual assault in this episode uh, of Gilly. And once again, it's used to define a male, the male character tangential to it or observing it it's gilly 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 nearly gets raped and it's all about sam it's not about her and granted he's the more main character of the two though he's been sidelined to an extent where i don't know how true that is at this point but theoretically he's more of the main character than she is um which is an inverse of the sansa and theana reek situation last week um but it also it didn't bother me anywhere near as much it wouldn't have bothered me if it weren't for last week. I uh, like almost for sure. Yeah. Well, and part of for me, a big part of that is Gilly has is already such a so inured to violence, having you know been constantly raped. One can assume in Craster's keep. I mean, her child is her child by her father against her will. So you know, yay. Uh, she's got a really horrible past and trauma that she's dealt with, and. I'm trying to think of any other character that they could have had nearly get raped and then decide, let's go have sexy times with my not boyfriend and had it not bother me. But it it actually worked for me here. And I think so much of that comes down to context and the specifics of the character, but also because this felt like a scene between these two characters and and she her trauma and her experience didn't feel that didn't they didn't feel like they were pulling away from that to explore Sam. It seemed it felt like they were doing both together whereas in the scene last week with Sansa and Theon Reek they specifically cut away from Sansa out of I would assume a misguided attempt to shield her and you know t- take it easier and made it made the scene entirely about Theon um at least the way that it ended so I think it's really interesting to see the show do a, a rape with a character that they've been teasing it with and holding that over our heads for so long and have us react so vehemently up against it and really hate it last week and then have the similar uh, things start to happen this next episode, but because of the context around it, because of the, what the character's story has been and how she hasn't been defined by uh, by constant threat of rape since leaving Caster's Creep. Uh, Caster's Creep. <laughs> that kind of works too. Caster's Keep. Uh, <laughs> Caster's Keep. Um, in the way that Sansa has been just like the threat of rape has been hanging over her for the entire series, you know, um, the, the, these details of context around the, the same event show, I th- for me at least, why last week was so problematic for me 
versus uh, this week and some of the other situations in the past. I've been talking too long here. Ricky, what do you think about this? Yeah, well, I'm kind of really sick and tired of talking about rape each and every single time we do this podcast. And that was my big issue last week going into the podcast. I'm just like, I'm kind of fed up. But because you brought it up, I'll quickly touch up on the Sam uh, Gilly scenes here. It didn't bug me for the exact same reasons that it didn't bug you, Case. I'm not going to repeat what you just said. What, what, what I do like about this scene is actually, no, it's actually the worst scene in the, in the episode. It really is because it's like it's like uh, Justine says, it's like yet again, we get a rape scene and it's it's put there so we can help define the male character and also help viewers understand that he is in a place now where he's surrounded by enemies because Master Eamon died and Jon Snow has left the wall. So he really has no friends and we didn't really need an attempted rape scene once again this week, but we got it. What I like about it is I like the way it was handled. Like, you know, last week, one of my major complaints was, well, we knew going into the wedding that Sansa was expected to have sex with her new husband for the very first time on the wedding night. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the writers have to actually have her raped on her wedding night. Right. But they decide to do that in this episode. They found a way, and sure, it was maybe cliche, and you could see it coming a mile away, even though I didn't expect it to be Ghost to come in and save the day, but I expected something to happen that she wouldn't get raped, because I was like, there's no way in hell these writers are going to rape two women back-to-back two episodes in a row. Um, At least they opted to not have her raped. But the thing that's weird about this, this, this season as a whole for me is I'm having a really hard time with the script each and every single week. So I think that this is one of the best episodes of the season. I'll explain why. And it's all about balance. So despite the fact that I still have problems with the script, which I'll discuss throughout the entire podcast today, I do think that this episode is well balanced in a sense that viewers expect certain things from Game of Thrones. There's things that we love about the show. For example, we love to watch two intelligent characters like Lady Olenna and Littlefinger battle it out with wit and with dialogue and with words. You know what I mean? So we get we get these great scenes with the High Sparrow and Cersei and the High Sparrow and Lady Olenna. And then we also like to see our action set pieces. We like to see the fight choreography. We like to see someone like Jorah wield a sword and, you know, pretty much take on like what was it, like 22 guys or something in that gladiator battle. We also get what I think is the best scene of the entire season yet, and I think therefore it's the best scene of this episode. We get this unexpected touching scene in which Aemon Targaryen dies of old age. How many characters in a TV show, Game of Thrones, actually die of old age? That is rare. But he dies. It's a very touching scene. He has a touching conversation in which poor Maester Aemon remembers his childhood. He talks about his his brother Aegon Targaryen, who's, of course, the Mad King and Daenerys' dad, I believe. And what I loved about that specific scene is not only is it beautifully shot and well-acted and touching and just, like, was pulling on your heartstrings, but it also reminded me that he is the last Targaryen left alive, at least that we know of. You know, we have our suspicions about certain people, for example, Jon Snow, but apart from Daenerys... He is the last one, right? Am I right about this? He's the last one we know of. Yeah, so he's the last one and he's dead. And it was that is one of the big surprises for me 
in season five. And the, the thing about season five is what I don't like so much about season five is I don't feel like we have many big surprises. Like I feel like there's a lot of foreshadowing and a lot of setup and I see it all coming from a mile away. Like, for example, we know Tyrion's going to meet Daenerys and he finally does meet Daenerys. We know that Sansa is going to get married to Ramsay Bolton. So therefore we're going to be forced to witness possibly a rape scene. We know that Cersei is going to get in prison because of the High Sparrow. Like, there's all of these things that we know is going to happen. We know that Melisande is going to want Stannis to sacrifice his daughter because she's been hinting at it for about four seasons now. So I have a problem with the script because the thing I like about Game of Thrones, it, it always delivered these unexpected surprises and defied genre conventions and and stayed away from cliches and TV tropes. And I feel like season five, it's not doing that. But I still like this episode a lot. What do you think, Justine? Well, I think I like the episode, or I dislike the episode for more or less the same re- reasons as Ricky. I think that the best moments in Game of Thrones tend to be the ones that defy expectations. And I'm really not sure the season had many of those moments. I think this episode works mainly because of the kind of skill of the actors. And for me, the best moments were um, the High Sparrow, basically in any scene. I mean, whatever. It's just like his introduction into the series is one of the highlights of season five by far. And then you have like his discussion with uh, Lady Olana. Sorry, I'm bad with names, like, which is awful for a show like Game of Thrones, but Diana Rake's character. Mm -hmm. That sequence is just like spectacular because you have these two actors who could not be better at what they do, really duking it out. And like fundamentally for me, the best part of Game of Thrones is really the characterizations. And I feel like that's kind of gotten a bit lost in the mix and kind of lost in these expectations that are coming to fruition. Um, But it still has those moments that really stand out and really grab you because undeniably, I think one of the greatest strengths of the show is like they have one of the best casts in television history. And when they're allowed to kind of have that moment to breathe and have these kind of like one-on-one like verbal sparring matches. The show is just like untouchable. It just hasn't been enough of it for me. Well, I think that this, what this episode has that the, some of the previous episodes haven't had uh, is it, and you touch on this, Ricky, is balance. So we have horrible things happening at Winterfell still. Thankfully, most of it is off screen, um, though certainly not all of it. Um, but we also have, and and we have Gilly attacked north of the wall. But we also get that really sweet uh, sex scene for for Sam and Gilly, and the comedy of it. We get a we get a fuck yeah win moment when Ghost shows up. Down in Dorne, we get to watch uh, the Sand Snakes just just mess with and have fun with uh, Bronn. Uh, we get to hear Jerome Flynn sing a bit more. Like we get, we get satisfying hell yeah moments with you know with Tyrion and Daenerys finally coming together. Like it's not only terrible things happening to people that we care about, and and having some, uh, ha- having some moments to counter the darker, like some more you know moments of levity to counter the darker elements of the show. I think really goes a long way this week. 
And it also helps that the show is beautifully shot. I mean, we talk about this each and every single week. Like, we can never really criticize the cinematography, the production, set design, the editing, the score, the music, et cetera, et cetera. It usually comes down to the script when we do have issues with the show, right? But when you do have this sort of balance, it, it, it's more enjoyable and entertaining for me as a viewer to watch. Since we gave our overall views and thoughts of the episode, can we now maybe go in order and yeah. maybe start with the North? Sure. Let's start. Let's start up north. Um, because we can. Let's start at the wall and then go to the the more general north. Uh, mm-hmm. general north. Uh, so so, what do you guys think of the situation up there and the the deterioration of this, uh, of the wall? Because we we had known we'd been told that the the wall is peopled almost entirely by criminals, given the choice between execution and joining the Night's Watch. So. When we have many of uh, Sam's allies, you know, several of them got killed off at the battle uh, at the wall with Mance Raider's army last season. There's only a handful of them that we know or trust. And so to have mm-hmm. John leave and take Dolores Ed with him as well. And then Mr. Eamon goes, I, as, as, as much as I don't like seeing women get attacked on this show, I think it was important to, to underline the wall is no longer a safe place. It wasn't that safe of a place before, but the balance of, of people you could trust and people you couldn't was a bit more even. Now Sir Alistair's in charge. Uh, do you think this is something that's going to continue <laughs> over the next few weeks? Like, is, are Sam and Gilly going to just, like, hightail it out of there? Like, what do you guys what do you guys think of this development, and how long do you think it's going to take John to get back? You know what's interesting is Sir Alistair Thorne is now in charge, but yet he advises Jon Snow not to go. And I would I would be like, why are you advising him not to go? Wouldn't you want him to go? Because now technically you have the power at the wall. But did you notice, Kate, and you're going to laugh, did you notice the shot on The shot Ollie's- of Ollie? Oh, I totally did. Background. Oh, gosh. Scene, I don't know if you listen to our podcast, but about three or four episodes ago, I was telling Kate on the podcast, I'm like, there's something wrong with this kid, Ollie. I think he's going to stab Jon Snow in the back. And it's because each and every single time the camera lingers on him, he's always in the background and he's always giving this evil eye to Jon Snow and or Sam. And we see it once again in this episode as he's standing in the back of Sir Alistair. And yeah, like I do not trust this kid. This is going to be the next Peter Baelish. All right. <laughs> He's going to grow up to be the puppet master. There are definitely some very capital V, capital S significant, capital G glances <laughs> from the camera to Ollie this week. Um, and yeah, so I thought I, I nearly laughed out loud when those happened. Did you notice? Do you know who we're talking about, even Justine, the little kid that? I have no that, idea who you're talking about. This is the, the the younger kid whose entire village had gotten killed by wildlings. Um, in okay, when yeah, they came I over, the kid is. I yeah. just have not noticed these like sinister glances. <laughs> I'm gonna See, almost have to like go back now because it sounds amazing. It's it, it, sort of it's, it's a- pretty hilarious. It's my killer spidey sense that kicked in like about four or five episodes ago. For whatever reason, I was like, there's something wrong with this kid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was so incredibly glad to see Ghost, or, you know, reappear because, you know, budget has kept him out of things quite a bit. But it's all I always love when they, they you know, give a moment to the dire wolves. Do you guys, what, what's the over under? Do you guys think we're going to see Ghost again for the next couple of weeks? Or is he just like made his season five appearance? He like mic drop, he's out. There is, from my count, three direwolves left alive, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, I don't think we're going to see any more direwolves till next season. 
There's four, right? Because both Bran and Rickon's wolves, right? Yeah. And Two. and Ghost. And Nymeria, we don't know that she's dead. Oh, right. She's I gone, could... but she she could be dead, but she also could could not be dead. Because I'm trying, trying to think of what is the big episode nine thing going to be, set piece Dragons. going to be. It could, yeah, it could easily be dragons, but they're all, we also know that they're supposed to be, you know, a bunch of armies marching at each other, you know? So, um, you know, It could be a big, like, battle set piece. Oh my god, I gotta tell my quick Starbucks Game of Thrones story. It relates to this conversation. Okay, so I went to Starbucks, so I'm sitting down, and this is right after we recorded last week's uh, episode, Kate, right? So I'm editing the show, et cetera, et cetera. And there's these two people next to me, and they're, they're talking about Game of Thrones. And so then they notice on my laptop, I have like a picture of like Sansa Stark and Ramsey Bolton from last week's episode. And they start talking to me and we got into this like big, honestly, an hour and a half conversation. And all these people that surrounded us joined in and was talking about the TV show. So I was like, yeah, I do this podcast. You should listen to it. Maybe they're listening to it right now for all I know. And so we were talking about this and the, the special effects specifically. And I was like, yeah, okay. So there's the direwolves and there's the dragons. But then I was like, wait a minute. Everyone keeps forgetting about the bigger picture. Winter is coming. And so I'm like, when the hell is winter coming? Is it coming season six? Is it coming season seven? Or are we going to get seven seasons of Game of Thrones and then it'll be winter, but we're never actually going to see winter? Because from my understanding, I mean, this is something that's been hinted at so many times, especially when we are at the wall, is when winter comes, we're supposed to get like the undead and giants and all kinds of supernatural like creatures. So how will they afford to do this? <laughs> that's a good question yeah so i don't know i wouldn't be surprised if we get seven seasons of game of thrones but we don't actually ever get to see winter like we'll see i don't know but anyways back to the north uh stannis baratheon most likely the most improved character of the tv show i think okay so in this episode first of all davos is actually sort of right right he's he, he has his doubts and He's expressing his concern and he he tells them like he's like, you know, we are heading north and we're going to face off against the Boltons who have tons of experience fighting in these cold winter conditions, whereas we don't. So technically he's in the right, but he wants to march forward because for him it's, it'll, it, it's like the, the only option because he believes that he will win because he saw a vision of a great battle in the snow and he comes out the winner. But then Millicent reminds him in this episode that he still has to make one more sacrifice. Now, the thing is, Justine, do you actually think, like, I know this is a show with, with dragons and, and direwolves and so on and so forth. But do you actually think that she is responsible for the death of Rob Stark and King Joffrey? Like, do you think that she actually put some kind of voodoo curse on these guys? Or do you think it's a bunch of bullshit? <laughs> I think that he will. I think he will. Because it's like a lot of Game of Thrones is kind of perversions of like mythology and religion and if you think of it, it's the sacrifice it's like a perversion of of Isaac's sacrifice right where God asks him to do it and then saves him the last minute but I think they were they're going to go all the way just to kind of subvert the mythology that we know and kind of take the different angle on it I see what you're asking is she responsible for the other deaths or indirectly or directly yeah I'm honestly not sure, and I like that I'm not sure. I think it's quite clear that she's responsible for. Um, I'm again. I'm so bad with character names. Uh, King Joffrey. No, not King Joffrey. Back in season one or two. Oh, you mean Renly? 
Yeah. You mean Renly, yes. When she birthed the creepy shadow baby with the face of Stannis. Yeah, the shadow baby. We know yeah. she's responsible for that one. So it leaves us to assume she would be responsible for the others. But she is so manipulative and so untrustworthy that I wouldn't I wouldn't put money down that she's someone that you should trust in terms of who she says she's killed or not. Because that's the thing, because we saw her kill Remley, so to speak, on screen. Like, we saw the shadow yeah, demon kill, exactly. kill him on screen. We, whereas King Joffrey was poisoned, and we know who poisoned him, and Rob Stark was killed at the wedding, and we know who killed him, but it was really at the hands of someone else. Where, technically, she's only used her magic to kill off Renly. And so that's why I'm sort of suspect. Like, does she really want to kill Shireen because she really believes that that is the answer and that is the only way that Stannis and his army will win? Or does she just want to kill Shireen because it's part of her master plan to somehow eliminate anyone that he actually cares about and truly loves in his life so she will be the most important person in his life? You know what I mean? But um, I do think that there is a good chance that she will be sacrificed if only because we've seen so many scenes of Stannis and his daughter, Shireen, especially throughout season five. I think actually the second best scene of of the season so far is the scene between him and his daughter, which I think happened in like episode three, if I'm not mistaken. That was an incredible scene. And so, I don't know, I kind of feel like every single scene in this television show is put put there for a reason and i think it's leading to some sort of payoff down the road so maybe maybe he won't be willing to actually sacrifice his daughter but it's going to come up in conversation again and i wouldn't be surprised if she is actually sacrificed well i could see him getting to the point where he's willing to sacrifice her but i don't (laughs) it's very strange that after last week i am a person who is foolish enough to say this but I don't really see the show killing her. Um, I could see him, like those scenes all building to his betrayal of her. And then that's what pushes Davos to abandon Stannis. Like that's the thing, especially now that his sons are dead and he, he like he, he doesn't have any family left for, you know, that he needs to protect, you know, with his loyalty. Because uh, if... If Stannis gets to the point where he is willing to sacrifice his daughter, burn his daughter alive as a sacrifice to the to the Red God, that is no longer the Stannis that Davos made his oath to. Um, so I would foresee something more like that because this show could have killed Rickon. You know, like maybe you don't can't kill Bran. He's got all these visions and everything, but they could definitely have killed Rickon back when Theon was you know doing stuff uh, at Winterfell. Like they're and they have chosen to not kill children. So, you know, I don't know. That that's that's sort of what what I what I see with that. Uh, also, uh, yes. So with Gendry, uh, uh, Melisandre used his blood, King's blood, of course, because he's a bastard of Roberts, uh, and you know, killed the leeches and said Joffrey and Rob Stark and, and everything. Um, and I like to think that that did contribute in some way this notion of a sacrifice to the red god help and then the red god helping people make the choices that they need to make but i don't i would hate for this to be a show where free will was an illusion and so you know walder frey didn't isn't really responsible for the betrayal that that led uh that led to the red wedding and um, and you know, the lady Elena isn't responsible for choosing to, to conspire with Littlefinger to poison, 
um, Joffrey. That that doesn't make sense to me in this world. So I, I like to think of it as a nebulous series of factors. But I think Melisandre absolutely believes it. Speaking of which, whatever happened to him? Um, Davos set him free so that he couldn't be sacrificed. Right. And that and... was Gendry. That wasn't Shireen. Right. And are we are we ever going to see him again? Well, there have been a number of things that have been cut out of the show. Uh, I would imagine he made his way back to the Men Without Banners, right? The Brotherhood Without Banners, that seem right to you guys? Yeah, yeah. But we haven't seen them in forever. Who knows if we will see him again? He could pop up. That's the kind of thing the show would like to do. What do you think, Justine? I have no idea. I I really don't know. Uh, do you, and, and do you think, then what happens with Davos? Or do you not care? See, I'm a big Davos fan from the books. So I'm like when we didn't see him for forever up north, it was kind of bothering me. Um, so I mean, I might be more invested in that relationship than than you guys are. You know, not really, because the thing about Stannis is that he is said to be the greatest leader when it comes to leading these armies that are going to charge into battle. Right. And he's got Davos by his side, who's like technically the best advisor he has he's got Davos by his side and he's the greatest leader in battle right now you know Jon Snow still has a lot to prove so that's a really powerful combination and he's got Melisande and her black magic or red magic whatever you want to call it um I'm interested in those characters and I mean they are headed north and we all hate the Boltons we all want them to win and become victorious so to me, it's a wild card. Like, what happens with Shireen? What happens with Melisandre and Stannis? Because the thing about Stannis is he's been playing with fire, and he hasn't really stopped to think about how... He, he hasn't stopped to think about the consequences. You know what I mean? And so now that she mentioned Shireen, now he's going to start doubting Melisandre, and I think it's going to cause a lot of tension between the two of them. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Considering he's been playing with so much darkness and fire... He, you know, in the, that really cheesy expression, when you play with fire, you're going to get burned. He hasn't really been burned yet. Very true. Like, not really. And yeah. you know he has to, unless the show is, like, the most cynical show of all time. Um, let, let's move a little bit further south uh, to, to Winterfell uh, briefly, because we've already talked plenty about, about that. Uh, I like that we check in with Brienne, how, you know, again, just one glimpse of her, but she's in a holding pattern. That's all we need. Um, the, the, th the, the connection I would make with the Boltons right now and with uh, the misstep in the previous episode as compared to what we see here is that this episode we get a major comeuppance, major comeuppance for Cersei, like a huge, like, cackle as the, the door gets slammed in her face, you know, it. We, we get, she's been built up as a villain, you know, this over the past few seasons and everything, and there's a little more humanization of her in this episode and in the season, but still... She's ripe. She's overdue for comeuppance, and she gets that here. The way that they've been handling the Boltons, I'm not going to care when they get killed. I'm not going to be, like, cheering and able to enjoy that. I'm just going to be glad they're dead and ready to move on. Um, and I think that's a mis misstep. Major complaint on my part all season long on this podcast. I've been complaining about the Boltons, and what did I say last week and the week before? That they are not even near as interesting as, say, the Lannisters, when it comes to being, like, the villains of the season, I just do not give a shit about the Boltons, be it Ramsay or be it... Bruce. Bruce. Yeah, you know, I just really don't care. If, if you're a first-time listener to the podcast, 
I was really hard on Sansa Stark way back in season two, three, and even to some degree season four. And that's because I liked her character, but I wanted to kind of see this character sort of stand up for herself. And I think we're slowly starting to see the fire that burns within within her. Like she is a really strong character. Like if you think about it, like she's really young and she's seen a lot of terrible, terrible things. She's seen her dad beheaded in front of her. She was married to King Joffrey, or sorry, Tyrion, and she had to like move north back to Winterfell and marry like Ramsay Bolton. And there's all these terrible things that have happened to her over the years. But unlike, say, Reek a.k.a. Theon Greyjoy, she's not as broken as he is. Like, despite the fact that she's seen terrible things and now is physically tortured and raped, etc., etc., she's not broken like a guy like Reek is broken to the point where he's basically like Ramsay's pet. And in the last episode, I thought the best scene was when she actually stands up to Miranda, who's Ramsay's lover, right, when she's given her the bath. I thought that was an incredible, incredible, powerful scene. And in this episode... She actually stands up to some degree to Ramsey when she actually makes it very clear that, hey, you are a bastard and uh, you were pardoned by a bastard. So therefore, it doesn't really matter because if your if your dad has a son, he will he will be the future king, not you. You know, and then we see her grab what I think is like a corkscrew, which I'm assuming means that she's eventually going to physically fight back and protect herself, which is kind of like what the point is that this is what I kind of want to see. I, I kind of want to see like, I don't think Sansa Stark is ever going to have someone sweep in and save her. Like, I mean, to some degree, you can say Littlefinger did, but not really because he just made things more complicated and technically worse for her. Right. He was using her. But I don't think Sansa Stark is ever going to have someone like, say, Brienne swoop in and save the day for her. I think she's going to have to do it for herself. She's going to have to find a way to fight back and escape and or do something, stab uh, Ramsey Bolton in the eyeball and with the corkscrew and or something. But the problem is I'm a betting man and... (laughs) I'm I'm betting that because we see her take the corkscrew and because of all of the terrible things that have happened to Sansa Stark since the very first day of us watching this, this TV show, I'm betting to say that it's going to backfire on her. <laughs> it's not actually going to go anywhere. And I say this because, Justine, I don't know if you know this, but my, my theory is that at the end of the, the, the TV series, come like, say, season seven, whatever season they go up to, I think Sansa Stark is going to be the one sitting on the Iron Throne. I think she's going to be the queen because we've seen so many terrible things happen to her that she's most she's the most unlikely person to to become the ruler of the Seven Kingdoms. But I really do think it's going to be her. I think that's an interesting theory. I don't I don't I don't want to shoot it down because part of it makes sense to me. I mean, we begin the entire series with the Starks, so it does seem reasonable that you would end with them. And it, Jon Snow is maybe a little too obvious, whether even though he's a bastard, right? I think it's a cool theory. Um, I could easily see a situation where uh, Brienne comes swooping in to save the day and comes up to the room, and, uh, and Sansa's all like, oh, this... Already got it. Like, he opens the door and Sansa's, like, getting dressed and there's Ramsey is over in the corner with a corkscrew in his eye, just kind of twitching. That She's would like, be awesome. Got this. Brush off the shoulders and go. Um, I, and, and just to underline here one last time, I, hopefully this will be the last time I say the R word on the show. 
Sansa didn't have to get raped for this to be her storyline, guys. Uh, the guys meaning the universe, you know, genderless yeah. guys, the, you know, not to, you know, Ricky or Justine. Uh, so the people who are saying that this is why, it's like, she didn't have to get raped for this to be her storyline. But I do like that her attempt to get uh, Theon to put the candle in is, like, her immediate escape attempt or whatever is unsuccessful uh, because I really don't need to then have her get rescued by a man. Exactly. Exactly. That's how I felt. Like I was so glad that the plan didn't work out because I want to see her free herself or find a way to escape and or take revenge or what have you. Like it's got to come, it's got to come from within her. Like she's, she has the thing about Sansa is she, she's a strong character. She has the courage. She's just young. She's sort of like Danny in that sense where she just, doesn't make the right decision like at like like you have a specific time window like it's a very brief window like where you have to react but because she's so inexperienced and she's not like a a leader per se she doesn't react and so therefore all all these terrible things happen to her like if that makes any sense uh but she's growing like i mean we're watching this character grow yeah and and if you really think about it the odds have been against her dying basically every season for a variety of reasons. She's been in literally the worst possible scenarios of almost every character by any logical sense. She should already be dead and she hasn't. And it's not just luck. I mean, I think she does have a survival instinct that is kind of undermined by her kind of inexperience, as you say, but the fact she's also seems quite meek, but I think there is an intelligence behind her survival that even she might not be aware of. There is something problematic about this episode, at least I think. In this episode, it's clear that a few days have passed since last week's episode because she's been, I, I mean, I guess you can say held prisoner in her bed in her bedroom for like God knows how many days. And then when we get to Dorne, so we, we, we have this scene, and I think it's actually a really amazing scene, in which the Sand Snakes are in prison and so is Braun. And so therefore, like, a few days have passed... But yet the poison hasn't taken effect yet. I was like, how long does it take for this poison to take effect? I, I, I got to one more thing. Just the last thing I have with Sansa is just I love that they include that brief moment of her finding out about Jon Snow becoming uh, the commander of the Night's Watch. It's just such a small thing. But this is a show where characters rarely get good news. And so that theory should be good news. And to hear about, you know, don't forget, you do actually have one sibling that you know is alive or family member, you know, depending on your theory with Sansa. So I really liked that they included just that little reaction from her. I thought that was really nice. In Dorne, I, I thought the scene, first of all, I already mentioned it, Jerome Flynn singing, delightful. Love that they continued the Dornishman's wife because I was feeling a little cheated, I got to say, last week because of how short it was. So I was glad that they had more of that this week. Um, but I've seen the scene with uh, one of the Sand Snakes, you know, uh, enticing him, shall we say, get very uh, strictly, uh, just get a lot of, you know, getting aligned. And really, I've seen a lot of really negative comments about it. I thought it was hilarious. And here's why. Because the reason that she is doing this is not just because, it's to raise his heart rate so the poison will act faster and kill him. Yeah, I loved ooh. that. I don't know how so few, like, I haven't seen that mentioned anywhere else. I talked about it with actually Cooper from uh, Damn Good Podcast and Eat the Rootcast, one of our, uh, one of our friends of, you know, Sound On Sight. 
But, and apparently, Rick, you picked up on that, but I literally have not talked to a single other person who did pick up on that. And it was so clear to me. I thought it was hilarious. I was like laughing out loud. I love, yes, this is, it, I could see it feeling leery to some and very much of the male gaze, but she's owning that. She's absolutely controlling him and she's killing him by exposing her body that she is very comfortable with to him. So I thought that was hilarious. I, I, I think the thing is, is that I'm just not clear as to why it took so long. Like they, if they've been in the prison side by side for a few days, like I just find it strange that it took them like a few days for that to actually happen. Like, I guess my question here is, yeah, that was an amazing scene. I totally agree. I, I think it was a highlight for the whole entire season. But when it comes to how much time has passed and not just like between episodes, but in between seasons, like. We also find out that it's been years since Jamie's daughter, sorry, I mean niece, has 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 moved to Dorian. I'm like, really? It's been that long? Well, first of all, do we know that the various time, like the, when we cut between storylines, for me, they aren't necessarily happening at the same pace. So just because we're seeing them intercut this way doesn't mean that it's happening in the same day or the same time frame for me so maybe that's why it didn't bother me ricky though i see what you're saying and okay, yeah, well, you it really ha it really has been that long if, if what you're saying is true then it totally makes sense then that totally makes sense but I'm, and i'm hoping that's it what do you think justine what did you think of the dorn stuff and like the the sand snake and like you know exposing herself um because the people thought that that was you know again leery and sexist it's Definitely leery and sexist, but that doesn't mean it's not a great scene. <laughs> I mean, like, it's possibly my favorite, but uh, what's his name? It's Braun Brown. Braun, yeah. He's so bad. He is possibly my favorite character on the show. Like, I am so happy every time he appears in a scene. So it's like, it's always like a little treat. And I do think that it's, it definitely leans more on kind of your interpretation of her trying to rise his um heartbeat to get the poison to act quicker it's it's really funny and in particular because you like from what we've seen throughout the entire series as this character is like this kind of womanizer um who is usually like paraded around these naked women and the fact that earlier in the season he literally has one of my favorite scenes was uh when he's with his uh betrothed and they're like having this love scene. And then the second Jamie Lannister shows up, he's like, I will get you a better wife. And he's like, fine, I'm on. I'm coming with you. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? It's just like, it's so absurd. It's so like such so much of a kind of exaggeration of the parts of the series that don't really ring true that I kind of enjoy it. And I wish more of the show was kind of in that tone. I wish we could get more of Dorn because the thing is, again, one of my complaints this season is we're not getting enough of Dorn and I want to see more of Dorn. Like, I like these characters. I want to get to know these characters like the Sand Snakes, for example. And although we don't get much from the Sand Snakes and or Dorn, period, once again this week, I still really do think that that is the best scene we've had of the Sand Snakes so far and I just kind of feel like right now it feels like a detour and I'm not sure how it really connects to the bigger picture. And it doesn't help that Marcella doesn't even want to go back to King's Landing. So it feels like the entire mission was a waste of time for Jamie Lannister and Braun. But now that we have, I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to call it like a romance, but I like the fact that she does reply by saying you're handsome and they do save Braun's life. And so they at least respect him. And I, I kind of feel like maybe they will form some kind of alliance and or friendship and or who knows. But I want to see more of these characters. But I'm just 
I'm just not entirely sure where this is headed because Marcella doesn't even want to leave and she seems perfectly happy and safe in Dorne. Again, it's one of those detours. It's like Arya at the House of Black and White. Yeah, but that's exactly what they're going to do. They're going to disrupt disrupt her comfort and safety. Maybe, yeah, because it just feels so removed from the from the bigger picture. But we'll see. See, this this is uh, this is one of the ways in which the show can actually surprise me this season because I had no idea what they're going to do with the House of Black and White and or with Marcella and Jamie. I feel like Jamie's just going to fuck things up. The whole series has kind of led up to the fact that Jamie is not particularly competent um and i've like i do recaps for another site and what i've kind of touched upon is the fact that um the house of lister is basically in mythological terms cursed just because of the infringement on like if a brother and sister fuck each other like there's no redemption in terms of classical mythology unless they're going to be completely redeem that i really don't think they're going that direction to me it's just make things worse like that's just that's his purpose as far as i'm concerned it's not going to end well if things seem good he's just gonna like put the wrench in something that's working well and just it's gonna just not go well that's it that's just gonna happen and i'm just gonna keep mum because i don't know whether i know what they're gonna do but i don't want to accidentally spoil something in case i do that's what happens when we're at this point in the series where the, some things they're changing and some things are keeping the same. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm just going to not talk there and, and say though, I do the picking up in that classical mythology thread, uh, Justine, I think absolutely makes sense. Um, I think with, I would not be surprised to see the show punish Cersei and let Jamie off the hook. Um, as far as these things are like, like if, especially I think if Cersei dies at some point, then I think the show will go full bore hero journey, you know, with, 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 um, Jamie. Uh, but for right now, yeah, I think that, I think that makes sense. Okay. Well, I guess we should quickly talk about King's Landing before moving over to Marine, which I think is going to be like the highlight of this uh, podcast. So King's Landing. So was anyone shocked that she was actually put in prison? Because I saw it coming from a mile away. I mean, we've been talking about this, every week on the podcast like what is she doing she's playing with fire and clearly you know if they could put the queen in prison they can easily put her in prison and because her cousin appeared not too long ago and he's part of like the high sparrows followers it was it was pretty obvious that he was going to um testify against her quote-unquote sins but what i'm not clear on is did peter baelish orchestrate this because like it just I because like he meets up with Lady Olena, he has a conversation. He's like, "Oh, I still have a young boy," which is going to be like a wild card. But I mean, I, I don't understand. Like, wasn't he already part of this religion and a follower of the High Sparrow? So wouldn't he have already told him everything about Cersei? Like, it just feels like the High Sparrow had planned this from day one and didn't need Peter Baelish's help. Baelish, uh, I think it's left very. Uh, I think it's left unclear. It's, you can interpret it as you would, but I would not be surprised to see Baelish pull out a different young boy to at the at the trial to testify. Or like I could see like Baelish's gift that he hints at actually like we're led to believe that it's Lancel, but it actually is something else that is yet to 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 occur. Um, that would be the kind of thing that the show likes to do. Okay, that's what I was thinking too. That would make more sense. Yeah, with. Yeah. with the highlight for me of King's Landing this week, aside from, you know, watching Cersei get thrown in jail, which was pretty delightful, um, 
great performance from Lena Headey in that in that moment. And it's something that as a book reader I knew was coming. So yeah, the 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 dramatic irony of that was particularly delightful. But you already mentioned it, Justine. The scene we get between Diana Rigg and Jonathan Price is fabulous. And when you put those two together, it's going to be great no matter what because they're both so amazing. Uh, but but I think that it was also very well written and. Uh, it's great to see we we already saw the queen of thorns like we've talked about in the podcast ricky you've talked about how all your favorite characters have have been dying that's how elena's gotta feel she's like can't i just deal with tywin again i hate that guy but at least i can talk to him you know <laughs> uh because i just loved her exasperation first with cersei last week and then here with with the high sparrow um yeah, yeah, except except this is the first time that Lady Olenna has truly been at a loss. Like she she was like speechless at one point. You know, it was like remember we were talking about how Tyrion was speechless like last week or the week before when he saw Drogon like fly over. This is the first time I've actually seen her speechless. And I think her performance, Diana Rigg, like each and every single week when she's on the show, she's amazing. But Jonathan Price, holy shit, his performance this week. You want to talk about villains? Like, this guy is has cunning and dangerous, has, like, Littlefinger and Tywin and Tyrion and, and Joffrey and Ramsay all combined. Like, he's a true believer, and that is scary. <laughs> like, this guy scares the crap out of me. Love his performance. I think Jonathan Price is one of the greatest additions the show could ever have hoped for and more. Um, he has so much personality. He is the perfect villain because... You really love to hate him. And I think that, um, again, I'm like, I'm so bad at a show like Game of Thrones because names are my worst thing. The Boltons, the Boltons, you don't love to hate them. They're just kind of like shitty. Like you're just like, whatever. But Jonathan Price, like when he is on screen, you know it's going to be a good scene. There's like, doesn't matter who he's going to be opposite against, the scene is going to be amazing. And so, like, they just need, like, the next couple episodes mostly about him, and it's going to be a solid finish for sure. <laughs> well, do we have any other thoughts on King's Landing, or is it time to to talk a little Danny and a little Tyrion? I, I just want to quickly echo your thoughts really quick on the final scene in this episode in which Cersei gets thrown into prison. Like that final moment is one, even even though we knew it was coming, like it's one of the greatest moments in the series yet. And it's so good because it comes right after she visits Marjorie in a similar cell, most likely right next to the cell that she's been thrown into. And I thought that was just amazing. It's because of her performance once again. So, yeah. Well, let's move down to Marine and the fighting pits. I, I really, it, you know, first of all, I got to mention, we never really talk about the costumes because they're just uniformly amazing most of the time. But we have to take a moment for Danny's amazing dress, the, that white dress with the cape. Holy crap. Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. Loved it. Um, but I, I really liked the way that. They, they tease you so much with, oh, it's going to be another near miss. And it's just, you could like start to just get frustrated on behalf of the characters and just as a viewer, because they've been delaying the, the, the much promised Tyrion and Danny meetup for like what feels like half the season. Um, so, so then to, to have, uh, to have first that expectation, uh, played with when, when Jorah comes out and very, uh, 
very accurate, very succinctly and non-fatally, uh, which I'm sure immediately got Danny's attention, uh, take out the rest of the, the fighters there. Fantastic. Uh, but then to, to have it look like Tyrion's about to have an axe swung down on him. But no, it's just, it's another, you know, they do the exact same thing again with him. Um, yeah. And the, the last thing I'll say with this, other than it, it was such a great moment, I think it lived up to the hype or the buildup that they've had. Um, do you guys think the the chains are lost upon Danny? The fact that clearly this is a person like everyone's supposed to be free. She said that everyone is free and you can fight in the pits, but you aren't allowed to ha have slaves fight in the pits. And here's this guy in chains. Or do you think they're going to just gloss over that and be like, oh, he was Jorah's prisoner. That's why there are chains. Because I really don't want it to be the second. Um, I'm kind of worried they're going to gloss over the whole thing. Um, I really hope that they don't, and I really hope that they kind of really address what basically like every scene with her has been about up to this point. But I don't know, deep down inside, I have like this really bad feeling that they're just going to be like, let's ignore that because it's kind of too difficult to explain and just like move on to the next plot point. Um, not that the show normally does that. I don't know. I just have a gut instinct that it's if it's if they do deal with it, it's going to be kind of glossed over, or they're going to find a really quick excuse, or it's going to be like a couple lines of dialogue that's it, and they're going to move on. Um, I hope I'm wrong. I really hope I'm wrong. The thing about this sequence is, yeah, we get this incredible fight sequence in which Jorah basically kicks everybody's ass. Like that was, I think, the best fighting sequence of the entire season. But the reason why it's not the biggest moment of the episode, even though technically it should be, like, when Tyrion looks at her and he says, I am Tyrion Lannister, you know, I am your gift. Like, it's not yet the payoff. Like, yes, he finally gets to Marine. Yes, he finally gets to meet the Queen of Dragons. But it's not really the payoff. The payoff is when we actually get to see her decide that she wants to work side by side with Tyrion and use him as an advisor because she needs someone that she can trust and someone who's intelligent on her council. So it's not technically the payoff, for, at least for me, at least not for me. So uh, I'm excited to see what happens next week with those two characters. Um, but yeah, I mean... Uh, the, the, you see, the thing about this episode, my closing thoughts here is that when we talk about balance, like we visit Bourne, we visit Marine, we visit King's Landing, Winterfell, and the Wall, and each and every single one of these locations featured at least one, if not more than one, great scene. And to me, that's balance. And so that's why I think this is the best episode of the season yet. Um, I'm really excited for the next three episodes, and I'm thinking that maybe the penultimate episode is going to be huge, as it always is. Uh, let's hope for a big episode nine, but I'm also hoping for a big episode 10 like last season. Any final thoughts, Justine? I hope that the show continues the latter half of this episode. I kind of, I, like, I, I do feel that my overall impression of the show is kind of went down significantly over the course of the season. And while this particular episode has a lot of bright spots, I still am a bit apprehensive and not fully engaged um but i like the characters enough and i like the situations and the production design that i do want it to succeed so i'm going to be optimistic um and hope this is kind of a sign that things are going to pick up a little 
Yeah, uh, I still have the, some of the same problems that I, you know, with the show that I expressed last week. Um, but there are other things that I'm excited about. And uh, and this is the kind of uh, episode I am much more interested in seeing. And, yeah, the the watchword for me, like you said, Ricky, is, is balance. And uh, hopefully we'll get more of that moving forward, um, even if... I don't think <laughs> I don't I I have a very complicated relationship with Game of Thrones right now and I'm going to need more distance before I can really come down one way or the other about its treatment of women um and its its use of sexual violence. So I I'm just going to I guess leave that there for now uh, cuz my overall thoughts on this on the series and on this season in particular are very tied to that. So I think I need to I think I need more distance before I can say have any blanket statements mm -hmm. fair enough i i still think it's my least favorite season so so far yeah. so far fair enough uh well justine thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk game of thrones with us where can our listeners find you and your work online um well you can most obviously find me on salon site where i'm the film editor and um i do post reviews and articles now and then um, I currently contribute recaps of Game of Thrones to Vague Visage. I'm also at a couple other places on the internet. I recently published an article with Fandor on the 1985 Cannes Film Festival, which was ridiculously time-consuming. Hmm. Um, so please check it out because it was like 50 hours of work on that. Uh, yeah, I think that's it. And Twitter at, at Red Room Rantings. I tweet a lot <laughs> you know wait wait i hate twitter but i got to admit and i said this many 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 times in the past justine is one of the most interesting people to follow on twitter there well, you thank you thank you that is a seal of approval ricky what's going on on sunday's site uh, this week what's obviously for me the big thing is coming up is hannibal starting next week so this is our design is gearing up and I'm starting to, uh, you know, work on reviews and think about this upcoming season. We're going to be collaborating on Hannibal reviews because I'm going to be writing most of it, but you're going to be contributing to that as well. Do you want to talk about that at all? Okay. So the thing is, I'm going to let you take over the Hannibal reviews because, hey, you're a better writer. Uh, oh, you're... well, <laughs> and you're I don't also... know if I agree with that, but thank you. It's very okay, kind. But anyways, but the thing is, is because I really want to focus more attention on the cinematic influences. Like, for example, we just were reviewing uh, the Mad Max movies, like all four Mad Max films. And in, and we did a two-part podcast special, and I think it was the second part. I was talking about how even a, a, a movie like Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome influenced a specific scene in Hannibal Season 2, which involved a bunch of pigs. You know what I mean? So, like, I really want to take a look at, at, at Brian Fuller's cinematic influences and sort of focus on that as opposed to reviewing the whole entire episode, like, story-wise. So that's the plan. Uh, Hannibal comes back. It's my favorite show, period. So if you, if you are not watching Hannibal, catch up, catch up, catch up. Watch the first two seasons. It's incredible. Uh, we just wrapped up our con coverage over at soundonsite.org. Uh, it's Action Movies Month, so we're... We're counting down the 100 greatest action movie scenes. The flagship podcast of SalmonSite.org, my movie podcast, is coming to an end. So uh, we are going to release episode 500 next week. And then we're going to call it quits and we're going to start something new. I'm not sure what the new project will be, but 500 episodes, 1,500 movies reviewed, about 1,500 hours of podcasting, plus 1,500 hours of editing. It's epic. 
and uh, do check it out and check out our Mad Max double special because it's incredible. Yeah, end of uh, end of an era, certainly for Sound on Sight, but that's also for film podcasts because you guys are one of the first ones out there. So uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a milestone. It's an important milestone, and uh, congratulations on on that achievement because it's amazing. Um, we're coming up on nowhere near as impressive, but we're coming up on episode two hundred of the Televerse this summer, which is exciting for me. Which the Televerse is the Sound on Sight's TV podcast that I co-host also with Simon. Um, that goes out every, every Tuesday. We talk about all of TV. So if you are interested in my perspective on other things that are going on in TV, as well as interested in hearing Simon's thoughts on Game of Thrones, because he does talk about it every week on the podcast. You can check that out at Sound on Sight. Um, I also have reviews going up every week for Orphan Black. I also contribute over at the AV Club. You can find my stuff there. But mostly, hit me up on Twitter, at the Televerse, because I love talking TV with you guys. I would love to hear your thoughts on on Game of Thrones and where this, uh, where this is all headed. And also, every now and again, we get some corrections and we get some comments at the website from our listeners. Um, they're not all corrections, but we appreciate those as well. Uh, so, so thank you to the people who do uh, can write and write comments and, and you know reach out to us over at at the website because we very much appreciate it. And we don't always agree, but we love to hear what you guys think. So, uh, I would encourage our listeners if you have thoughts on on this very controversial season of Game of Thrones to, to head over to Sound on Sight and leave a comment and, and start up the conversation there as well as on Twitter. Next week, we are going to be back to talk about Season 5, Episode 8, Hard Home, which is, again, written by David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, and again, directed by Miguel Sapachnik. I really need to, like, there needs to be, like, an IMDb, but just for how to pronounce people's names, so I can feel less terrible about it. App developers out there, internet developers, website developers out there, there's a need, you know, even if it's just me and the other few podcasters out there. But on that note, let's wrap up this week's podcast. Uh, thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Sound On Sight Game of Thrones podcast. Brothers, oh brothers, my days here the done. The Dornishman's taken my life. But what does it matter for all men must die? And I've tasted the Dornishman's wife. I have, I've tasted the Dornishman's wife. He's got a good voice. We're lucky he's a singer. If he were a fighter, we might have been in trouble. It's against my code to hurt a woman. It's amazing how many men we beat seem to have this code. I wouldn't say you beat me. How's your arm? Wonderful. Wouldn't feel right to leave Dawn without a new scar. You think you're leaving Dawn? No great hurry. Dornish women are the most beautiful women in the world. Thank you. I said Dornish women. I didn't say you. I'm not the most beautiful woman you've ever seen. I've seen quite a few women in all the Seven Kingdoms. Name one more beautiful than I am. Well, now, in King's Landing, there was an absolutely gorgeous... There was a what? In King's Landing, you were saying. Was I? There was a woman more beautiful than I am. Was there? My memory's not what it was earlier. How's your arm now? You seem concerned with it. You must really like me. (laughs) 
And how about your head? My head. My head. You don't even want to know what's going on. Your nose is bleeding. It's nothing. It's the dry air. My dagger was coated with a special ointment from Ashai. They call it the long farewell. It takes time to work. But if a single drop makes contact with the skin, death. The only antidote. Who's the most beautiful woman in the world? Sorry? Who? You. Don't drop it. I think you're very handsome as well.